Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where the lowest viewer ratings in a decade for a Super Bowl are a good thing, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where Representative Sarah Cap has filed a bill to abolish daylight savings time in the state of Arkansas. Tonight, we'll be talking about what has been dubbed the Scream Murder. On September 22, 2006, 16-year-old Cassie Jo Stoddard was stabbed to death by Tori Adamczyk and Brian Draper. Adamczyk loved horror movies, and Brian Draper idolized the Columbine Shooners, and both of them wanted to go down in history as serial killers who had a high body count. We'll talk about the days leading up to Cassie's murder, the evidence against Adamczyk and Draper, their trials, direct appeals, and attempts to have their life without parole sentences reduced. As always, we are a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. Good evening, Michael. How are you? Good evening. I'm doing pretty good, and unfortunately, I had to sit through that Super Bowl and just be tortured by the fact that Tom Brady tied my Pittsburgh Steelers for the most <laughs> NFL championships in that or Super Bowls in the history of the game. Yeah, you didn't have to watch it. I told you how to avoid watching it. I I gave the Paramount Network, which was running a cops marathon. Mm-hmm. I gave them my ratings. Okay, I, I I mean that sounds like a pretty good alternative. Yeah, I didn't even surf to the CBS station here. Right, when I yeah. surf. I just skipped it. Yeah. <laughs> even the commercials were terrible. And yeah, I I did not even get into the halftime show. Blah. Yeah. So. Well, we'll see. We'll see how things play out next year. Right. Maybe exactly. the NFL has learned a lesson. <laughs> yeah, uh, it'll definitely be interesting to see what happens moving forward, especially on that issue <clears throat> with review and pass interference plays and things like that. Mhm. Well, I think that there should be. I think we talked about it last week. I think that there should be. If something happens and the refs don't call it, I think the coach of the team that it happened to 
or the player that it happened to should be able to say, hey, wait a second. Although I would I would say any NFL players listening, when something like that happens, lay on the ground, don't move, and act like you're hurt. Well, I mean, 90% of the time when you look at it, you do <laughs> see, uh, you know, receivers, especially if they're interfered with, they'll, and, you know, do the throw the flag motion and so on and so forth. So, I mean, that does happen. But, I mean, then again, you'll see players do it for plays that aren't pass interference, you know. those right. uh, Putting it on the players is one of those subjective things. Just like this, if you were to say, hey, there should be an honor system and that player uh, should have been uh, should have been honest and went up to the official and said, hey, I yeah. you know, interfered with that guy. Yeah, afterwards but, he's going to do it. But, I mean, it's very unlikely that he's going to do it during the game. But I don't know right. if you caught this. Uh, karma may have bit him in the butt a little bit. Uh, he actually got flagged. I want to say a hit on a defenseless receiver that was quite controversial, and a lot of people were kind of scratching their heads on that one. So, I mean, a lot of people said, hey, it's just payback for that uh, pass interference. Call. In the Super Bowl? Yeah. What did that? Okay, okay. Yeah, I believe in, in this. I believe Brady in this Do what now? In this particular game, Tommy Lee—I don't remember if his last name. I think his last name's Lewis. He could have laid on the field because there was helmet helmet contact. Right. Well, so he could have laid on the field it. like he was hurt, <laughs> and that might there have was, you know spurred the referees to do something. There was one uh there was one moment uh during this play where it did look like he uh the play that he did get flagged on where it did look like he hit him around the neck. I mean, it, it was a pretty mm-hmm. hard hit and they went ahead and flagged him for that one. So, you know, like I said, a lot of people said it was just karma for the uh end of the NFC title game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's now in the past. Yep. And uh, we move on. Football's over until, what, August? Until, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, most fans don't count it until the games start counting, so that would be, what, the beginning of September? But, yeah, pretty much until August. Depressing <laughs> thought. Speaking of which, actually, yeah. while we're talking about sports in New Orleans, have you uh, been paying attention to this whole Anthony Davis thing? No, I haven't. Uh, wait, leaving Pelicans? Yes, the uh, basketball okay. player that's pretty much holding the Pelicans hostage. Uh, no, I'm a I, I have fan, not. So I've been watching it quite, quite uh, closely, and yeah, the Pelicans are trying to uh, do some. They're trying to rob people blind out here for this young man. Yeah. Well, I, I I did see their coach came out and said, hey, 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 Gail Benson treats us wonderful, please. <laughs> Don't right. say she doesn't. <laughs> right, right. So, but it, um, It's always funny it was, what people come up with. New Orleans has never been a good baseball or a good basketball market. We had the Jazz. I think we only had them for about – 
two years. There was nobody oh, going. Oh, yeah, I forgot y'all had the jazz at to one the game. Point. They they could not they could not give tickets away to those games, and that's why the Jazz moved to Utah. Yeah, um, you know because Pete Maravich was the big Jazz player, and I mean uh-huh. he's from down here. He's got a stadium at LSU now. Uh-huh. Right. But, uh huh. Right. You know we we just aren't, and we're not a baseball market. We had the Zephyrs, which is like you know Triple A or whatever. Um, and now they're called the Baby Cakes, which is the dumbest name <laughs> I've ever heard. That's hilarious. But there's just not a lot of interest in that's almost as good baseball. as the, as the best. That's almost as good as the basketball team going from the Hornets to the Pelicans. Yeah. Well, you know, Pelicans makes a little bit more sense. Yes. Absolutely. Especially um, you know, for a New Orleans Pelicans franchise. Yeah, exactly. Pelican, Pelican but I, I thought some Pelican. other, I thought some other market got the Hornets name. They did Charlotte. Okay. Well, yeah, that's Charlotte where they came the from. Charlotte was the right. original. Yeah, they were the original Hornets. Then the Hornets moved to New Orleans and became, you know, the New Orleans Hornets. And Charlotte, uh, I believe it was Michael Jordan bought an expansion franchise to add a team to the NBA, and they were the Bobcats. And then I forget what happened, but a couple years back, obviously, they somehow got the name back. Right, right. So, um, in fact, when I moved to Memphis, we were trying to get the Grizzlies. They were in Minnesota. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. And they went to Memphis instead of New Orleans. And everybody used to tease me that I was going up there to see the Grizzle games. Like, no, I don't, I don't like basketball. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a bit as big a basketball fan until it gets into, like, the finals, and then I'll start really paying attention to it. Yeah. So. All right. Well, well are we ready to get on with the show? Let's go ahead and do it. Let's talk about casting. Cassie was born on December 21st, 1989. Uh, She had an older sister and a younger brother. She and her brother had lived with her grandparents for a while while their mom got on their feet. But right just before she was killed, she had moved back in with her mother. And, you know, they were, she was still close to her grandparents, very close to her family. Um, she was a good kid. I mean, she was good in school, helpful to her friends, loved animals, wanted to help people. Her dream was to become an attorney and either represent disadvantaged people or become a prosecutor to help people who had been victimized by crime. Um, Okay. The area in Pocatello, Idaho, where this, where these events occurred, I think there's a large Mormon population. Uh-huh. I don't know whether Cassie and her family were Mormon as well, but they they may have been. And she left behind um, her mother, her brother and sister, her grandparents. 
a lot of friends, her school, they had a stone that they used to paint for games and things like that, kind of, uh, you know, like a gathering place for kids. They painted it in honor of Cassie as a memorial to her. Okay. And every year in October, they do a program called Pumpkins from Cassie. Mm-hmm. where you buy pumpkins and the money is donated to animal shelters or some other cause in the Pocatello area. Um, they initially did it in 2006 to uh, help pay for her funeral expenses. But they've continued doing it every year since then, and it's been growing and growing and growing every year. Mm-hmm. And this will be um, the... A 17th year? Oh, wow. That they're doing it? I'm terrible at math, people, so don't don't quote me on that. But uh, the, the what? 14 years. Yeah, I was about to 15. say. 13, 14, something like that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no more math tonight. Yeah. Um but, Let, you know, she was a really good the math. Yeah. She was a really good kid. Um she was a responsible kid. If she said she was gonna do something, she did it. And she she was very serious about it, which for a sixteen year old girl is somewhat unusual. Um and at the time that she was killed, she was actually house sitting for her aunt and uncle while they were out of town with their children and taking care of their cats and dogs. And she took it very seriously. Um, And she was saving up money to buy herself a car. So, you know, 16-year-old girl, no enemies, no one had any reason to dislike her or hurt her. And unfortunately, her life was cut short by two teenagers who were not like Kathy at all, even if they fooled their families into thinking they might be. That's crazy. I mean, just to think about that kind of stuff, that's just, I mean, and especially a kid as young as what they were and everybody was in this situation. That's just that's crazy. Yeah. So so now we move on to Toria Domchik. Mm-hmm. He was also a middle child. He had an older sibling and a younger sibling. Um, Pocatello, the, the cost of living is relatively low there. So you can have a nice house and still, you know, middle. they were middle class. Economically, um, his dad worked as a mechanic for a car dealership or or in some capacity at a car dealership, and his mom was, um, I think she was a clerical worker of some kind. Right. Um, And, you know, but they they had a nice house. They had custom built. They had just moved in shortly before all this happened. Um, he had some 
learning difficulties, I guess, ADHD and things okay. like that. Okay, so nothing um, too, nothing too. But right, and but he also, I think, the impression that I've gotten from hearing the things he says and his interests and things like that is, if he was interested, he could excel. Mm-hmm. And he did get relatively good grades, but he needed a little bit of help. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and, and it sounds essentially like me. Only difference is, you know, I I have ADHD, so I mean, I understand the, the inability to pay attention, but you know, that definitely doesn't affect my ability to know right from wrong. So let's go ahead right, and get exactly. that one out of the way. Yeah, and that that is that's the crux of it. Um, he didn't have anything that affected his ability to know right from wrong. And he'd been raised in a family that had tried to teach him right from wrong. Because, again, uh-huh. that family, I, be, I, I am pretty sure, you know, don't quote me, but the Adamchicks were Mormon. Uh-huh. And they are a, a little bit stricter uh, going right. to church, religious uh, study and and uh, reading the Book of Mormon and 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 studying it and and knowing it. So and and they have a a very high moral code as well. Right. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I mean, if I remember when I was uh, my brother-in-law was at uh, was stationed at Hill Air Force Base in Utah at one point. And I remember when I went out there and stayed with them one summer, you'd listen to uh, you'd listen to the news and they'd talk about how parents were uh, in trouble for, you know, uh, I guess there's something in the uh, Mormon religion or something of that nature that says that, you know, if your if your kids screw up, you can kick them out, you know, and they were kicking these, you know, 11, 12 and 13 year olds out of their house. I mean, they, they, you want to talk about well, trick? they're. They're pretty I, strict. I think I think you're thinking of one of the fundamentalist Latter Day Saints sects, mm-hmm. and that was basically more that the the men running the it's a polygamous community, and the men mm-hmm. running the community don't want competition from the young, good looking boys. Right, and so they drive the boys out of the community um because you know your 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 average mormon family they're you know if the kids are screwing up whatever they may be doing, it's not going to come to kicking them out unless it gets beyond what they can can deal with you know and and I think they raise kids with such a a strong moral code that the kids tend to want to follow that. They don't want to break the rules. Right. And when they break the rules, they're sorry they did it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I grew up with a few Latter-day Saints uh, kids, and, you know, that's that's how they were. They They followed their parents' rules. The girls couldn't go to dances because boys and girls – don't don't date the way outside the Latter Day Saints community do. 
Um, you just, you're not alone. You don't put yourself alone with a boy. Right. Because right. even if you don't Absolutely. do anything, people will wonder. And um, so, and we talked about uh, Mormons a little bit with uh, Jody Arias and Travis Alexander. Because Travis right. is a Mormon. So, but, um, yeah. But I think the the other thing with Tori he had his parents thinking he was perfect, always doing everything right, but then he was getting away with as much as he could behind their backs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, you know, the person his parents saw is not necessarily the person that others saw outside the home. Okay. Absolutely. And I think of of the two, I think Tori is the more manipulative one. And, you know, he's, he's a big fan of horror movies. Okay. And that's nothing wrong with that unless there's something, some little switch in your brain is not right. And so you can't distinguish between the the fantasy of the movies and your reality. Was he a big fan of the movie Scream by chance? <laughs> yes, he was. Uh, and I think a big Wes Craven fan. But I think just about okay. anything, mm-hmm. you know, the the gorier the better. Okay. And um, then Brian Draper is the other young man who was involved in this. Um, he actually, he had a troubled history when he was in middle school, he and another kid were plotting a Columbine style shooting at their school Mm -hmm. and they did it a couple of times, but a third person would report what was going on and then Brian and the other kids involved would be talked to and they would always say, no, we, we weren't serious. It was a joke. We were frustrated. You know, we were just saying stuff to say stuff. And, um, but he idolized uh, the Columbine shooters who I will not name. Mm -hmm. And um, he, uh, he idolized them. And by the time he's 16, he wants to be like them. Hmm. That's a problem. And then it was just a few months. Uh, they were all students at uh, high school in Pocatello. Mm-hmm. And just a few months before all this happened, Tori and Brian found each other. And together, it was just a lethal combination. Right. Right, I mean, they you know, who? That's like uh, setting a setting a uh, firework on fire. The uh, end of it, the switch on fire, and not expecting it to blow up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it was just one of those situations. Just the dynamics between the two. They just what they wouldn't do alone. They might think about it incessantly but they always needed someone else to kind of egg them on and I think it was both ways I think 
Tory egged Brian on, Brian egged Tory on. Absolutely. But they put their heads together, and in this particular case, they came up with a detailed plot. Mm-hmm. They picked victims. They talked about their plans. They talked about what they were going to do. Uh, they so they wrote like to-do lists. Very, extremely. And the premeditation like almost, it starts... It like almost like they made a checklist and start, you know... Yeah. It, it, that's crazy. Yeah. They they did. And and there's a video, um, the ones that I found are not complete because there's one portion of the video that's missing um, that shows them in like the school library skipping class and sitting at a table, the camera's facing them both, and Tori's writing. And they're doing their to-do list for that night. This is on September 22nd. But the planning really started on August 30th 2006, when Tori Adamczyk goes to a friend of his who has turned 18 and says, hey, can you buy me some knives? Hmm. And the guy says, sure. And so, so they go and so, he buys so like five knives. August 30th? August 30th, correct. Okay. Five knives, a Rambo-style knife, some really wicked-looking knives. The, uh, the pages are on the... Uh, the pictures of the of some of the knives are on the uh, the little slideshow on the page. Okay. Wicked, wicked okay. looking knives. They ordered masks, and when they got the masks, the masks weren't scary enough, so they added red paint to look like blood, and you know decorated them themselves to make them look scarier. Oh lord. So this is like a bunch of kids getting a Halloween costume together. This is Correct. Correct. And then um, September 21st is when the videotaping really starts. And there are a couple of videos on the 21st. They go out to scout. They had picked out multiple victims. And they go to scout one victim's house. But she's not there alone, so they can't kill her. Uh-huh. And they talk about killing Cassie and how Cassie's going to be their first victim. Right. And they talk about a second victim who's going to be home alone. So, uh, I mean, they, they've got a plan. They've got victims picked out. Uh, they, they name Cassie by name. And the sad thing and the thing that makes me angry, Cassie was their friend. Mm-hmm. Cassie was not someone who, you know, like the cheerleader that never gave them the time of day that was that was snobby to them. Right. Or laughed at them or anything. I mean, she was a nice girl. Everybody liked her. Nobody had a problem with her. And she liked everybody. Right. Um, but, you know, they, they talk about killing her. And... Um, it's just, you know, she's our friend, but we've got to make sacrifices is one of the things that Brian Draper actually says. And, um, that's cold. Then on, yeah. Then on the morning of the 22nd, Brian Draper actually 
takes video of Cassie in the school at her locker. And later on that night, they're out. They go to the aunt and uncle's house where Cassie's house-sitting. Her boyfriend, Matt Beckham, is there. And they go to hang out because Matt, I think, had told them where, where she was going to be, not, not knowing what was in store. Um, right. And they show up. They hang out for a little while with Cassie and Matt. And then they say, oh, well, we're going to go to a movie. Mm-hmm. And they leave the house. And about 15 minutes after they leave, the lights in the house go out. And that spooked both Cassie and Matt. The lights were out for a little while. They heard some noises, but they weren't leaving the little living room where they were. And then the lights came back on. Mm-hmm. Well, about... 10.30, Matt's mom comes to pick him up. Uh, she was not going to let him stay. He wanted to stay. He even asked his mom, can I stay? The lights went out a little while ago. Cassie's scared. And his mom said, oh. no. Y'all are 16? No. Yeah, and then Matt, Matt tried to get Cassie to just go to his house. Uh-huh. And stay at his house because his parents were home. Uh, but right. she couldn't leave. She She's house-sitting. She took it very seriously. She said, I can't leave. She's sure. supposed to be watching the dogs and, and the family cats, and she's not going to leave them, you know, because she's spooked. So she ends mm-hmm. up staying back alone. And like okay. I said, this is about 1030. Not long after Matt left, now in the meantime, I guess I'm kind of I'm kind of getting it it's hard to keep it chronological. In the right. meantime, Brian and Tori never went to the movies. They okay. come back to the house. They're the ones who had turned the power off. Yeah, and then yeah. turned it back on. Cuz while they were at the house, they unlocked the basement door so they could get back into the house. Ah, got you. And so they're lying in wait, basically. And uh, one of the things that um, they talk about on the video while they're waiting for their opportunity is that they're, they're going to lure Matt out of the house and kill him and then go in and kill Cassie. Uh-huh. And, you know, if they go in and Matt's there, we'll just kill them one by one. And Tori Adamczyk says something like, why can't it be a slaughterhouse? I mean... If you read the transcripts for these videos, it just it, – it's really – it's it's scary how cold That's, they are, both of them. Yeah, and I'm sure – and I'm sure – and I haven't gotten to see these videos or anything, but I'm sure it's quite uh, chilling to uh, – I'm sure they were quite calm during all this and, you know, mm-hmm. it just – Oh, yeah. You know, Tori Adamczyk waxing on the nature of good and evil and that there is no God and, you know, telling people you can't kill just makes them want to do it more. (laughs) Yeah, that's special. Yeah, that's special or sick. (laughs) I'm not sure which. And I don't know whether it's – it's not sick in the sense he doesn't have a, a, a disorder that causes delusions or anything. He knows right from wrong. Right. He doesn't care. 
So uh, Matt's gone. Tori and uh, Brian have snuck back into the house. They've mm-hmm. turned the power off again. They're trying to lure Cassie downstairs, but she's not leaving that living room. Right. And so finally they go up to the living room, and she is stabbed more than 30 times, probably two different knives. Twelve of the wounds are potentially fatal, Mm -hmm. uh, would have caused death alone. And um, they believe two knives were used because there were some wounds that appeared to have been inflicted by a serrated knife blade and wounds that appeared to be uh, from a non-serrated blade. And when they bought the knives, Brian Draper chose a serrated knife and Adamczyk chose a non-serrated knife. Mm -hmm. Coincidence? I think not. Yeah. So uh, they, they kill Cassie, get back in the car, Video camera comes back on, and Brian Draper's announcing he's killed Cassie. He's kind of excited, maybe freaking out a little bit. And what does Tori say? Tori says, uh, get your shit together. We've got to... Uh, I'm, I'm going to find his exact words. It's like something like, get your Mm -hmm. shit together. We can't, you know, we can't do this or we're going to get caught. And they do a little bit of a videotape kind of reflecting on what they've just done. Not, oh, my God, how could we do this? Why did we do this? we got to do something. we got to call police. Oh, no, no, no. They're thinking, okay, now we don't want to get caught. So let's go burn and bury evidence. Wow. And they go to a place called Black Rock Canyon. Mm -hmm. And they try to use hydrogen peroxide to accelerate a fire. But it does not work. And they don't stick around to see that it's not working. And so they leave. Mm -hmm. So the evidence that they've left in this, this canyon is not totally destroyed. Okay. And it's going to come back to bite him on the butt. Hmm. Okay. So um, Cassie's, Matt and Cassie's mother tried to get in touch with her over the weekend because this happened on Friday the 22nd. 23rd, Matt spent the day with Toria Domchik and... He tried several times to get in touch with Cassie, but couldn't get in touch with her. Now, the Mm -hmm. cell phones in that area didn't work well. Cell coverage was spotty. Mm -hmm. Um, Cassie's mom tried to get in touch with her, but could never get in touch with her. Uh, But again, thought cell coverage is spotty. When her cells work in, she'll see the missed calls. She'll call me back. And on Sunday, the 24th, the aunt and uncle and family get home about 10.30 in the morning. And unfortunately, Cassie's 13-year-old cousin is the first person to go in the house. Mm-hmm. And Cassie's 13-year-old cousin finds her in the living room. Mm. 
and they contact police who come in. Um, they find the police find out that Matt was at the house. So of course he's boyfriend number one suspect. They interview him, and they're a little not sure what to make of him because he's not showing a lot of emotion. But they also, you know, what he's telling them, they believe it. That Tori and Brian came over, the lights went out, he had to leave, he wanted her to go with him, she wouldn't go, and he had to leave and left, and she was fine. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they go interview Tori, who is with his parents, and he tells the story about going to the movies, but then he can't de- he can't describe the movie. He doesn't mm-hmm. know the plot. He doesn't know the characters. Um, then he says, "Okay, we weren't really at the movies. We were breaking into cars." Police leave. They talk to Brian as well, and Brian gives them mm-hmm. the same. First, we went to the movie, but then when they can't describe the movie, says, okay, we were breaking into cars. Right. Afterwards, the police check for reports of broken into cars. And they weren't breaking windows and going into cars. They were basically testing handles at the doors. Not locked. You open the door, you take the stuff. Right. I had that happen to me. Yeah, and I've they don't have any any reports of anybody saying anything stolen from their car. Um, mm-hmm. So they go back. They either go back to Brian, or Brian's parents have talked to him, and he has told them the truth. Mm-hmm. Because eventually, Brian comes back to police. And he leads them to the evidence in Black Rock Canyon. Canyon. Okay. And they find masks partially burned. They find a piece of notebook paper partially burned, but with enough to figure out that it was some kind of to-do list. Right. Uh, with Cassie's murder. Mm-hmm. Um, they find uh, the knives. They find clothing, they find gloves, and then to their surprise, they find a videotape, and they are able to watch the videotape. And when they watch it, they find all of the tapes, all of the the recordings from September 21st and September 22nd, just prior to and just after, after Cassie's murder. Uh, Brian actually gives a statement, but in his statement, he says they went in there, they were just joking, they would just try to scare Cassie, and then Adam went crazy, and Adam, um, not Adam, Adamchik went crazy, and Adamchik made him stab Cassie, and, you know, he didn't want to do it, and it was all Adamchik's idea. So all of a sudden, he decides to... Oh, it was this guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he he decides to come clean, come clean to a degree. A I had nothing chick. to do with it. I was I was just negatively influenced. Mm-hmm. A dom chick um, is a little bit tougher customer 
He does, though, when the police kind of summarize what they know during one of the interviews, and his dad turns and says, is this true? He nods his head. Mm-hmm. Um, Brian Draper's parents apparently uh, did not necessarily want to see their son get off scot-free. Right. But Adamczyk's parents cannot deal with the fact that he did this. Mm-hmm. And so he's telling them, I didn't want to do this. And his story, when he when he eventually tells what little bit he tells, is that it was all Brian's idea. Brian made me say all these things on the videotapes. And I thought it was just a movie that we were making. I went back there because we were just going to scare her. And then Brian went crazy. Mm. And he doesn't even admit to stabbing Cassie at all. Right. And, um, of course, that led to their arrest Mm -hmm. for first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. Okay. And they were both charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy. I know we're gonna. Get, I know I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but you mentioned earlier they okay. got life in prison. Uh, obviously, first degree murder in this amount of premed. Uh, do they not seek the death penalty because they're minors? I don't. I don't know that Idaho has a death penalty. Okay. Um, it it may well have been because they were minors. Mm-hmm. Um, that they couldn't seek the death penalty because this was in 2006, probably just after Roper. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like it looks like Idaho does have death row, so they didn't seek it because they were juveniles. Very okay. excellent question. Well, I was just question. I didn't even think of, about that. With this amount of pre-med, I'm pretty sure it would be easy for them to get it if they seek it. If they had been 18, they likely would have gotten it, yes. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it, it likely was um, that this occurred after Roper versus Simmons, which is the case that, that outlawed death penalty committed crimes as juveniles or for crimes committed when they were juvenile. Okay. Which I I I understand the principle, but you weren't executing a juvenile. By the time they were executed, they were in a, in their thirties. Oh yeah, now nowadays death row, you're waiting at least a good ten years unless you live in Texas. I mean, so being yeah. honest here, but, uh, but I mean uh, even now we mentioned you know not being able to get the death penalty on somebody who's a minor, but even now, unless I'm mistaken, and I've only heard snippets of this, but I believe they're actually trying to outlaw lengthy sentences like life in prison for minors as well, for crimes committed as minor as well. So, I Correct. Mean, they're definitely doing their, they're definitely trying their best to uh, say, oh, they're young, 
They they didn't right. know any better. Right. And Just Roper E. Simmons doesn't mean that you shouldn't know not to kill somebody. Right. Exactly. And Roper v. Simmons was decided in 2005. Okay. Okay. So, and we'll talk about that a little bit, you know, a little bit later. Okay. So um, they, like I said, they were arrested and charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. And they were tried the separately, correct? They were tried separately because each was blaming the other one. Okay. And so Draper went to trial first, mm-hmm. and the prosecution, it had, they had the videotapes. They had the evidence from Black Rock Canyon that Draper led them to. Um, they had the knives. They had the testimony about Tassie's wounds and... Uh, the videotape alone was just, you say, we're going to kill Cassie Stoddard. Cassie Stoddard ends up dead. It doesn't Pretty take a math shot. genius to add those two things together. Uh, and right. he was convicted. The defense, there really wasn't much much of a defense. Uh, I think that, you know, basically... All the defense attorneys could do is try and downplay the video. It was a project. It was not meant to be real. He didn't think it was real. He had no ill will toward Cassie. He had no reason it to was hurt a, Cassie. Hold on, time out. It you was know, a project. Are you serious? Oh yeah, I'm going to make a project for school where I pretend to threaten to well, kill no, one of my Well, no, they classmates. were. They claimed. They at one point claimed that they were making their own movie. Oh Lord! And a dom chick was writing scripts, and Brian Draper was, you know, the director. However, it begs the question: If you were making a movie and this was all pretend, why weren't you filming when you went into that house with Kathy? Mm-hmm. Because in your little brain, you knew you can't film Cassie being stabbed to death. Because that's something you could never explain away. Right. Um, yeah, I think these two really, they, they had the concept of plausible deniability. Mm-hmm. So, no, everything we said on that video was a script. And I don't really like the Columbine shooters. I just think, you know, this would make a cool movie. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it, that didn't work on the jury. And, you know, right. I mean, Draper's defense challenged everything. They challenged, they tried to suppress uh, some of his statements because he made a statement that uh, his parents weren't present for. Mm-hmm. Um, they tried to um, they tried to tailor the jury instructions in a way that would allow a jury to con- to acquit him. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, you know, so that but there was like I said, there's a, a videotape. We're going to kill Cassie. This is our plan. We're going to go in there. We're going to turn the lights off. 
I mean, it, it, it practically gives exactly what they were going to do and what they did uh-huh. in the in the different videos. Um, because uh-huh. I know it's over two days that they're videotaping. Plus, you've got the buying the knives on August 30th. Uh-huh. And that's, you know, another question. If it was pretend, why wouldn't you go to a, a you know, a prop department at school and get prop knives? Or order them on Amazon. I'm sure you can find pipe prop knives on Amazon. Those right. little rubber knives that, you know, don't really stab people. Um, yeah, and why would sure you get an 18-year-old? Real knives. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, why would you get an 18-year-old to go buy real knives? But I think even then they were thinking we could say those were his knives and we didn't have anything to do with it. Mhm. So, um, and also, you know, the the big question is, if you didn't think you did anything wrong, why'd you go try and destroy evidence? Right. Absolutely. So Draper was convicted, mm-hmm. and um, he was convicted of first degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder, and he was sentenced to. And the terminology in Idaho is different. He was basically sentenced to life without parole mm-hmm. on the first-degree murder charge. And then I think right. he was sentenced to 30 to life, the equivalent of 30 to life, on the conspiracy charge. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the other thing is prior to sentencing Draper did hold a hearing and he did look at any evidence Draper wanted to put on to uh, mitigate his culpability. So he wasn't, it wasn't that the statute says first degree murder, life without parole, that's your sentence, kid. Mm-hmm. There was a sentencing hearing where he presented everything he, you know, could present to try and mitigate his culpability, and more or less request that the judge be lenient, mm-hmm. ask for leniency from the judge. Um, but the judge, when you look at, it's, it's the same in death penalty cases, and it's the same in any sentencing where uh, you put on. The, the defendant puts on case and mitigation, which is abuse, drug use, alcohol use, uh, mental illness, whatever other factors that may have led the defendant to act the way that they did, even though it was wrong. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that judges don't do this in a vacuum they don't look at just what you put on in mitigation. They also look at the crime that you committed and the facts of the crime you committed. Right. And then they kind of weigh and balance punishment fits the crime. And in this case, that was life without parole. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, and then Adamchik was trial was tried 
not too long after Draper. There's a little bit of controversy because the videotape that was used in Draper's trial, that then became public record. And so prior to Adamczyk's trial, the videotape had been on news programs and things like that, or, or snippets from the videotapes had been, you know, shown on news programs and, and gotten a lot of publicity and, and saturation in the Bannock County area of Idaho. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, really, the the videotape was admissible at trial. And actually, probably a jury, jurors who had seen the video outside the courtroom may have been somewhat desensitized to it. Mm-hmm. So that actually could have worked in, in Adamczyk's favor. Um, it's not an issue that he ever raised, but it's one that his mother, who has written a book, complains about. That there was no way he would get a fair trial because that videotape was public before his trial ever started. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the evidence against Adamczyk was more or less the same. He lied to he lied to police. He lied to Matt. He lied to his parents. Um, the videotape, the evidence, uh, his DNA was found on some of the evidence found at the Black Rock Canyon site. Mm -hmm. So he couldn't say, I had nothing to do with it. Yeah, Um, absolutely not. You know, they didn't find a lot of DNA from Cassie. I don't know how or why. Um, And Adamczyk's Mother now says, well, all the DNA points to Brian Draper. But we already know Brian Draper wasn't alone because you're in Tori's car, Tori's driving. At 11.53, when the camera comes back on and Brian's saying, I just killed Cassie, and Tori's saying, get your shit together. We don't want to get caught. Right. So, um, again, the defense challenged statements, challenged and uh, challenged one of the search warrants, even though no evidence was being used. They, they were challenging seizure of a computer and evidence on a computer, but the that evidence wasn't even being used by the by the state. So, but some defense attorneys think if it's if it's bad, whether it was used or not, we're going to complain about them having it. And they tried to explain, you know, Adamczyk was, he thought it was just a movie. He thought it, he was writing a script. He didn't know Brian Draper was serious. And this was all Brian Draper. Right, right. And again, he was not successful. That defense did not work. And he was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced uh, and conspiracy to commit murder. And then he, too, after putting on mitigation evidence, 
and asking the court for leniency. He, too, was sentenced to life without parole and 30 years to life on the uh, conspiracy charge. Right. Okay. So then they go into the direct appeal, and they each, once again, is everything they do separate because they're blaming each other? Yes. Uh, because okay. they were tried, if they had been tried jointly, it would be Draper and Adamchik, or okay. Adamchik and Draper. But because they were tried in separate trials, because the direct appeal looks at the trial and looks at the error in the trial claimed by the defendant and decides whether or not the error uh, basically makes the trial unsound it's the best word i can think of um you know if there if there if there was evidence admitted at trial for example the videotape if um say the videotape was found while they were executing a search warrant at draper's house and videotapes weren't mentioned on the search warrant and they seize the videotape and find you know, they find evidence in the in the canyon because the videotape shows them burying evidence in the canyon. Then, you know, the videotape should never have been admitted. Evidence obtained through the videotape should have been admitted. They'll, you know, reverse it and remand it for a new trial. Um, that's not what happened because Draper led them to that evidence, which included the videotape. But just say they have a search warrant, they find a blank videotape in a video camera, and they take it and and find all this evidence, that's a Fourth Amendment violation. Uh Because the search warrant didn't say anything about videotapes. Sometimes courts will, you know, it's, it's complicated sometimes, even as complicated reading the opinions to try and figure out why the court didn't let something in or why the court did let it in Uh and why the appellate court agrees or disagrees. So, um, but do you want to take our break real quick? Yeah, absolutely we can. Absolutely. Okay. I was just about to ask you if you wanted to take a break because we're speeding through this tonight. Okay, well, let's go we ahead and are. Let's No go digression. We'll be right back. I need something to drink. All right. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Undefined 
Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories? Then check out the guys at Sub Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub Ohm Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub Ohm Vapors. Vape it like you built it. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Wow, I'm sorry, right. but I mean, good lord, I I know I've I've butted in a couple times, but this is some interesting stuff. I'm actually really enjoying listening to all this. But these two kids are crazier than just the craziest thing you can imagine. I'm just gonna throw that out there and let you continue. I don't I don't know that it's definitely. I don't think it's crazy. It's just. They want to be bad. They don't. They well, don't I mean, want to live by the morals crazy people <laughs> of society. You know, it's and it's not crazy. It's it's they know right from wrong. They don't care. True. Sometimes True. crazy people don't know right from wrong, or they think mm-hmm. their right is right even when it's wrong. You know they can't they can't rationalize their behavior, and sometimes they don't they right. don't even understand why they do the things they do. These guys understood exactly what they were doing. Right, and these guys obviously you know the 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 video they talk about being better serial killers than anybody else, having a higher body count, not getting caught. Um, at one point, Tori's like, for all the FBI, you know, agents watching this in the future, you were too slow. And Brian Draper, you know, chimes in and too dumb or too stupid. Uh-huh. You know, it, it's not, it's not crazy. <laughs> the way I think of crazy is somebody who can't help themselves. Uh-huh. Very true. And these guys could have helped themselves. Okay. They want to be bad. Yeah. But, you know, uh, oh, but they don't want the consequences of their bad behavior. Mm-hmm. So uh, they want to get away with it. 
Right, exactly. So let's talk about yeah. this. I believe, are we still on the direct appeal? We were just starting, yes. correct? Right. Okay. We were just going to start for, for Brian Draper's direct appeal. He basically raised seven issues. Um, there, He raised an issue regarding the jury instructions on the murder and conspiracy charges. Uh, he raised the issue of whether his fourth police interview should have been suppressed because his parents weren't present. He also raised a an issue as to the jury instructions. The, well, let's see. He The error in the jury instructions and the court's failure to suppress the interview, he alleged that even if neither one of those was individually harmful, together they constitute a reversible error. And it's called the cumulative error. And then he also raised challenges to his sentence, uh, whether it should be vacated because the pre-sentence investigation was biased. Um, he objected to the fact that his parents weren't allowed to participate in the investigation, but that's because the investigator did not feel that he would be honest in front of his parents. Uh And the pre-sentence investigation, they have to get your honest history and your honest account of the crime in order to recommend to the judge whether you should have a light sentence or a a punitive sentence. Uh And um, then he also challenged the fixed life sentence for murder, alleging that it violated cruel and unusual punishment of both the Idaho and U.S. Constitution, Um, whether the district court sentence was an abuse of the district court's discretion, and whether uh, the district court denying a motion to modify a sentence was an abuse of discretion. Basically, the Idaho Appellate Court, the Supreme Court, I believe it was, found that uh, only one of Draper's issues had merit. Mm -hmm. And that was they did find an error with the jury instructions on the conspiracy charge. So -hmm. they reversed the conspiracy conviction and remanded it for a new trial. Okay. The state of Idaho elected not to retry him on the conspiracy charge. Okay. And um, so that was his direct appeal. So he was successful in one ask where they uh, he was able to get rid of the conspiracy charge. Now, what kind of with him only being successful on one? count of that, what kind of effect does that have on his sentence? Does it lighten the life None. or None. The, okay. uh, the, the court affirmed everything else. They found that the interview uh, did not, you know, the court didn't, the trial court didn't abuse its discretion not suppressing the interview. Okay. Um, and that the they didn't find cumulative error. They 
did not find the pre-sentence report was biased. They did find the investigator perhaps um, his or her bounds to a degree, but they didn't find that it, it rendered the report uh, meaningless. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And um, then it also, you know, upheld the fixed life sentence because it wasn't done. It wasn't a mandatory sentence. It was a sentence after consideration of both the mitigating and aggravating factors of the facts of the murder itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how successful was the Dom shit then? He was not successful at all. His conviction on both conspiracy and first-degree murder counts were affirmed, mm-hmm. and he had challenged the uh, he challenged the sufficiency of the evidence uh, of his causing Cassie's death. Uh, Draper didn't challenge the sufficiency of the evidence at all, but Adamczyk did. And the court found that there was sufficient evidence given that one of the potentially fatal wounds was from a non-serrated knife that could have been a wound inflicted by Adamczyk. Mm -hmm. They also found that even if he didn't directly cause her death, he still aided and abetted Draper in causing her death. They were in Adamczyk's car. Adamczyk was driving. If he really didn't want to go through with this, if this really wasn't supposed to be a murder, why would he just, when they leave that house, say, okay, we're going to a movie. We're going back to my house. No, we're not staying here. We're going home. Mm -hmm. Or leaving Brian on the side of the road and going and calling 911 and saying, hey, you need to get this house. I think Brian Draper's about to do something bad. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, he also, uh, he did try to get some of his statements made while he was in custody suppressed. Uh, the statements where police kind of summarized what they knew. And his dad turned and said, is this true? And Adamczyk nodded. Um, he tried to get that suppressed, but the uh, the court found the Supreme Court found that that was not his father was not a state agent, and therefore uh, there was no need to suppress. And it wasn't really a statement; it was more just an acknowledgement to his father that what the cops were telling him was true. Right. Um, he also challenged jury instructions and uh, alleged a fundamental error in closing arguments by the state, mm-hmm. raised the cumulative, cumulative error doctrine, um, mm-hmm. claiming it was reversible, amounted to reversible error, and then also challenged his sentence as okay. unreasonable or cruel and unusual and the failure to reduce it in response to his, uh, it's called Rule 35. I think it's like a motion to modify sentence, which was filed after the trial. Um, Okay. And 
he too was not successful. Now it's interesting, after they were convicted, prior to the appellate process starting, and I should have mentioned this earlier, uh, they rode to the prison together. And apparently when they first got into the van to go to prison, they wanted the officer to let him go and said, we're just dumb kids. Can't you let us go? Um, um, no. I would say that, that shows a little bit of delusional thinking. And yeah. then also the, the guard the guard talked about how they, uh, they actually said, you know, it's hard to believe three days could have such an effect on our lives. Wow. You know. I think, like again, I think that shows the badness, or dare I say, evil. Yeah. Not necessarily uh, any mental disease or defect mm-hmm. that renders them incapable of telling right from wrong. Right. So um, then, Brian Draper has not filed any state state post-conviction claims. He appeared in a documentary called Lost for Life, and I think there was Mm -hmm. a second one about kids sentenced to life in prison. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and I think it was two separate documentaries, and in both of those documentaries, the interviews that Brian Draper gave, he seems to have been taking responsibility for the part he played in Cassie's death. Right. And he seems to be accepting is where he should be because of what he did. Okay. Well, um, good. At least, he, at least somebody's taken responsibility in this situation. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's been his, his, Direct appeal was decided and became final, I think, in 2011. And so he had, I believe, a year to file a state post-conviction claim. Mm-hmm. And he he didn't do it. So I think he has accepted uh, his culpability in Cassie's death. Adam so pretty much not so much. Yeah, I was about to say from pretty so pretty much from here on out it's just gonna be a Dom Uh yes. Correct. Biden. Okay. So I mean was he successful at all in his state post convention conviction? No, he was not. He raised okay. he raised several issues, but uh the trial court dismissed some of the issues that he raised based on the, the papers filed in the record rather than having hearings and things like that. But the the trial court did hold hearings and um uh Adamchik raised an issue on the ineffective assistance of counsel on the failure of his counsel to seek to suppress evidence discovered on a computer seized from Adamchik's home as a result of a deficient warrant. Right. And the court basically found, the the trial court found, the evidence on the computer was not used in the trial. 
Mm-hmm. So his attorneys did not need to seek to suppress evidence that wasn't evidence used. That isn't even going to be used. Yeah. He also uh, alleged that his counsel was deficient in failing to uh, have its experts perform tests on the actual murder weapons, and that right. deficient performance uh, prejudiced him. But the what he presented to the the court, the trial court at the hearing, there's no, you know, no deficient performance that they could find based on what he presented. Um, there was a bit of a, uh, there was an issue at the trial where the defense attorney alluded to the state denying a request to test the weapons. And so his expert used exemplar weapons, mm-hmm. which then the trial court wouldn't let his expert testify because he didn't use the actual weapons. Well, when the defense attorney alluded to being denied, the requ- having a request for the rep- weapons denied, the uh, prosecutor got a little hot under the collar because he had never been asked for the weapons. And the court was not real crazy about that claim because the court was never asked to order the weapons turned over to the defense for testing. Uh And so if you don't ask for something and you don't get it, that's on you. But in, in the end, based on all of the evidence, testing the weapons and presenting, you know, a contrary opinion to the state's experts would not have made a difference. And so even if it was deficient not to test the weapons, it didn't prejudice mm-hmm. the defense because there was sufficient evidence. And that's something we see a lot too. Something is portrayed as um, irrefutable by the defense, but yet when they when they present it to the court, and then the state gets to present their side, the court finds that it's not irrefutable; it's been refuted. And this is kind of one of those situations where the Supreme Court found testing the weapons would not have made a difference in the outcome of the trial. And, you know, the a lot of defense attorneys throw down it, throw around ineffective assistance of counsel. And then they name all these things the attorney didn't do. It's not just what the attorney didn't do. It's whether or not the the things the attorney didn't do would have changed the outcome of the case. Mm-hmm. And nine times out of ten, they wouldn't. It's just like Brady violations. They cite, oh, they didn't give us this, they didn't give us that, they didn't give us the other thing. But then sometimes it turns out that uh, even if you had it, it wouldn't have made a difference because there's sufficient evidence or overwhelming evidence that even if a jury heard this one little bit, they would still convict. Right. And... um, so yeah, basically the uh, 
the claims, the only claim they really, really had a chance on was the, the life sentence because Miller versus Alabama, which is the kind of landmark case, it does right. uh, prescribe sentencing juveniles to life in prison under mandatory sentencing schemes. Mm-hmm. In a lot of states, first-degree murder, if they have the death penalty or not, it's still usually a mandatory life sentence. Right. And so um, that was Miller versus Alabama was a case where a 14-year-old was sentenced to life in prison under a mandatory sentencing scheme. Uh-huh. Miller doesn't say you can never, ever, ever, ever sentence a juvenile to life in prison without the possibility of parole. It just says that if you're going to sentence them to life in prison, you have to give them a chance to present evidence that could mitigate their culpability in the crime and lead to a lesser sentence. Uh And so the Idaho Supreme Court found basically since the trial court did have sentencing hearings where Adamczyk was able to present mitigating evidence about his age and his emotional development and his chances of reoffending and his chances of being rehabilitated. He had the benefit of Miller, even though Miller hadn't been decided yet. Uh-huh. And then the other case we mentioned was Montgomery versus Louisiana. But Montgomery basically just made Miller retroactive for people who were sentenced prior to Miller's being decided. Okay. Um, so a lot of juveniles since Miller and Montgomery have been filing uh, petitions, post-conviction petitions, to get new sentencing hearings. Some have been gotten their new sentencing hearings and have been sentenced to shorter terms and been able to get out. Uh, some have not. So... Um, after the Idaho Supreme Court, Adamczyk did file a writ to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, oh, and then another thing before I move on. The other thing the Idaho Supreme Court found was that the trial court was not bound to use uh, magic language from either Miller or Montgomery in order to... Uh, have a sentence that was legally sound. Okay. So the trial court didn't have to say he that Adamczyk was irreparably corrupt during his sentencing. Right. And Adamczyk criticized some of the some of the comments made by the trial court, but you know, I I totally agree the trial court was of the opinion based on what he knew, that if either Draper or Adamczyk got out, they would kill again. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so, um, but like I said, the Idaho Supreme Court didn't find any error, and 
affirm the trial court's denial of relief. Uh, Adamczyk filed a writ to the U.S. Supreme Court, which was not granted. And interestingly, the state of Idaho did not file a response to that writ. They waived response. And none of the justices filed a dissent from the denial, which they can do. And Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg do it in most death penalty cases when Mm -hmm. the U.S. Supreme Court doesn't grant a writ of certiorari. Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg chime in on why they would grant the writ. So that's interesting to me because Montgomery was decided uh, just a couple of three years ago, or maybe even even sooner than that. So both Sotomayor and Ginsburg were in on the court when that was decided. So, but that's pretty much it. Um, You know, basically, uh, uh, both Adamczyk and Draper are sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Uh, Adamczyk will likely move on to federal court. Uh, His writ was just denied this year. Right. Uh, he'll likely file a, a petition for writ of habeas corpus. He'll raise all the issues he raised on direct appeal and at um, post-conviction. Mm-hmm. And then the federal court in Idaho will weigh in. Okay. Okay. So, but that's where they stand. And, and a dom chick, uh, he, he's not taking responsibility for his part in Cassie's murder. Right. Uh, He's continuing to say, and and through his mother who wrote a book called The Guilty Innocent, uh, he's continuing to say that he didn't think it was serious. The videotape was just a script for a movie, and Brian controlled everything, and so anything that makes Adamczyk look bad is because Brian Draper. Well, gosh darn! I know that that and, and another Draper another claim is DNA evidence. He he claims DNA evidence exonerates him. Wow! But I I well, haven't seen. I mean, there wasn't any DNA used at the trial. Yeah, I was. About to say, I haven't seen that one thing uh, on your list here that says something about them raising DNA. So, and wow. you know, I did see mention of DNA on, I think one of the items of evidence, and it may have been a knife found in Black Rock Canyon that was Tori Adamczyk. So. Uh, you know, they they only found cat. They may have only found Cassie's blood on Brian Draper's knife, but you know the the knives were buried in the in the dirt in that canyon. And from a statement on the video, 
Adamchik was the one who was thinking about not getting caught. So maybe he cleaned off a knife and got rid of whatever he used to clean it with. Right. Who knows? But um, there haven't been any official DNA tests. So I don't know whether this claim is just uh, propaganda from his advocates or whether it's legitimate. But nothing has ever been presented to a court as far as DNA evidence goes. Okay. Okay. So uh, I see we got another Texas case next week. Uh, yeah. That's definitely – I'm noticing a pattern. <laughs> a lot of people in Texas well, you know, screwing up. Well, no, Texas isn't screwing up. And one of the reasons I go with Texas a lot is because the Court of Criminal Appeals has a lot of material online. Oh, okay. And so even if they have an unpublished opinion, I can go on their website and I can download a direct appeal opinion that wasn't published. Especially when it's cases where the convictions were in 2005, 2006, 2007, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And um, now they have a lot of the memoranda and briefs also available. And it is, it, it is, it is a state that has more death penalty cases than a lot of other states. Okay. So okay. I'm not saying, you know, I, I will, you know me, I will probably never say they screwed up, even where they got it wrong, like with Michael Morton. Because at the time, in the 1980s, a wife is killed, the husband is the natural prime suspect. And when the husband's behavior is hinky in the detective's eyes, and when the story he's telling just doesn't add up, unfortunately, he's going to be the one charged. Uh-huh. And I, I think we will, we will go into the Michael Morton case. Okay. Okay. Um, probably. Uh, and also, if you're listening, our Facebook page. Any suggestions for cases, we would welcome them. Uh, It's Clear and Convincing Podcast on Facebook. You can find us pretty easily. Um, There's also our WordPress page. But any suggestions for cases, Michael, if you have any suggestions. I know I kind of poo-pooed Selena, but if you really want to do Selena, we can do Selena. (laughs) Hey, I mean, it's whatever. I'm just down yeah. for whatever we get, we want to do. I feel bad, though, because I'm always the one picking the cases. Hey, you're the one with all the knowledge. <laughs> so, but, um, yeah, if you see anything. Now, I do need you to do some homework. I know you're going to be busy. Mm-hmm. But if you can watch I Am a Killer on Netflix, Okay. Charles Thompson's episode. Mm-hmm. I want you to watch that because it'll give you some insight 
into who this guy is and the, what happened in this case. Okay. Well, I'll definitely right. check that out sometime this week. Yeah. It's it's a good I, – I mean, I thought it was pretty good. I, I saw a lot of people were upset giving these killers a forum. But I like the fact that it was, at least as far as I could tell, it was balanced. It didn't give their side, the killer's side, and then uh, bolster it by talking only to people who believe the guy to be innocent. They talked to people who, family members of victims and people who were affected by the crimes and got their side of the story and talked to law enforcement and prosecutors. And that's one of the things I like about Warner Herzog. As biased as he can be against death penalty, he still does give prosecutors and police their fair time, and he lets them discuss the case without... <clears throat> excuse me, interjecting his own beliefs about the case or the evidence. Okay. So um, it, it's it's pretty good. Okay. <clears throat> awesome. Awesome. Well, Lisa, let's go ahead and wrap this sucker up, put a bow on it, and let's get out of here. I promise I won't interrupt you. <laughs> no problem. Okay. All right. Thank you, everyone. Michael. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us next week on Tuesday, February 12, 2019 at 8 p.m. Central for Episode 38, State of Texas versus Charles Victor Thompson. In the early morning hours of April 30th, 1998, Thompson kicked down the door of his ex-girlfriend's apartment in Houston, Texas. Once inside, he shot and killed Darren Kane, then shot his ex-girlfriend, Denise Hayslip, in the face. Denise died a week later in a Houston hospital. We'll talk about the evidence against Thompson, his trial, conviction, and sentence, his escape from prison and eventual recapture in 2005, and his continued efforts to challenge his conviction and sentence. Until then, everybody have a great week. Stay safe. Good night.